Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Rabbi Adin Evan Israel Steinseltz, an Israeli Kabbad Hasidic rabbi, teacher, philosopher, author, translator. He's been compared to Rashi and Maimonides in terms of the import of his scholarly and religious achievements. Today's show, we speak with his son, Rabbi Meni Evan Israel, about two of his father's books, Talks on the Parashah, featuring explanations of the Torah, and Change and Renewal, which explains the significance of the Jewish holidays. You're listening to New Books in Jewish Studies, and I'm your host, Michael Morales. Rabbi Meni Evan Israel serves as the executive director of the Steinseltz Center, which oversees the teachings and publications of Rabbi Adin Evan Israel Steinseltz. Rabbi Meni, welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. Thank you for having me, Michael. It was a pl- great pleasure. Very great pleasure. In our last show together, Rabbi Meni, we talked a little bit about your gifted father, Rabbi Adin Evan Israel Steinseltz and his work. This time around, can you tell us something about yourself and how you came to the work of the Steinseltz Center? Sure, absolutely. I was born here in Israel, and the interesting thing is that I, uh, you know, had a fantasy actually as a child to work here in the center. That was part of my uh, you know, childhood dreams. But I, I never, uh, um, uh, you know, I never thought, I never thought uh, that, you know, that I will, I will have, um, you know, actually be able to do that, you know, because when I, I, I graduated from rabbinical school in the old age of twenty, and um, after I got my ordination, I spent a year in Geneva, Switzerland, as assistant rabbi there. Um, again, it was very, very, um, you know, when you live in Israel, you, even though, you know, we were, I can't tell you we were a sheltered family. I mean, obviously we were very open and, you know, our experiences were wide and, and, and not narrow in any way, shape or form, but to, to leave overseas for a permanent, for a longer period of time, give you a different aspect of a way the Jewish world is worldwide, but also how the entire world is functioning. Israel in a lot of ways. Israel is a bubble. You know, again, it's a very bizarre bubble. It's trying to burst all the time, but it's a bubble in a sense of like most people you see are your own, your own family, you know, their own, your own uh, nation, their own people. It's different than, than being overseas when you're a minority, obviously. And two, when, when different, you know, religious symbols have different implications. I had, uh, uh, for example, I had a row there with somebody for about uh, about 15 minutes about why I don't take my uh, yarmulke, my kippah, my you know skull cup, as they call it, when I meet meet uh, dignitaries and other people. He, for his life, you know, he could not figure out why would I do that. I mean, obviously, it's, you know, the custom in many places when you go to a place of worship, a place of honor, you remove your hat, and I said this is not. A hat. This is a religious symbol, which symbolizes the fact that God is watching over us all the time. So you know, it, it was a very interesting um, 
experience in that sense that year. Um, again, I went back to Israel for a couple of years, and immediately after I got married, and almost uh, after the first child was born, I went to uh, to become an emissary for Lubavitch, for Chabad, in Richmond, Virginia, also known as God's armpit. It's sweaty, it's hot, it's humid. I mean, it's like, you know, it's the only place in the world when a guy like me can have exposure to a term of the war of northern aggression. <laughs> I thought I know history. I thought I knew the American history. I knew I thought what I'm talking about. I never knew there's a war of northern aggression. And I actually spoke to some, you know, they were clearly uh, locals. Give them a name. That's what they referred to it. And it was very, um, it, it was interesting. It was interesting to have this experience there. Um, a lot of issues of the city and so on and so forth. And then a couple of years later, I became a Hilo rabbi, which is equivalent to a chaplain in universities. I've spent some time in uh, Stony Brook, New York, and some uh, few more years a regional director in in uh, the Baltimore region. But, um, you know, it was interesting. Again, American uh, universities are very, as you know, firsthand, universities are very um, interesting places. And... The conundrum of having a relationship with a student for four years as an undergrad and then immediately after you graduate is might as well be moving from your Rolodex because he's, he's no longer need you and is graduating and move forward. It's a very uh, interesting experience about the way the fluidity of humanity and fluidity of the soul. And then in the year, the end of 2003, my father came to our house in Baltimore and basically told me, I want you to come and work for me. I have to tell you, I played hard to get. And, um, you know, if I talk about terms of exactly what my job will be, and, and basically my father, uh, most of the time, evade the questions on all of the above, from what your salary looked like and what my responsibility looked like. Um, I basically said, you just come. Took about a year, a year and a half for me, just to arrange my... Uh, Affair is in order and to move back with my uh, three kids then. Then, uh, what should we call it? We, you know, I, I became a program director here in the center, which again was very interesting because, you know, typically a, a young whippersnapper coming to a place trying to, you know, renovate the world, creating a new society, thinking about ideas. And I remember that one day I, I was uh, researching, you know, some just to see what we have in an archive. And I saw materials my father wrote in the 60s. And every single idea that I had, every single idea, if it was the, the, the consequences between Jewish law and the, the description of when he defining the time of death, he did. Relationship between Jews and Gentiles, he did. Modern understanding of Jewish text, he did. So everything you have in mind, basically the men already did it. And it was like a mind-blowing concept, you know, because he thought about it, I think, about 40 years before any other organization thought about it. He already had these ideas set and in action and in place, which is, again, it's a very mind-blowing experience vis-a-vis -vis the, the relationship. Um, you know, that was my main, uh, my main, you know, I was a program director of a couple of years, and then um, a couple of years later, he appointed me to become his CEO, in the organization, the most important thing I, can, I brought into the to the work was 
management and uh, and control. I mean, my father is the type of person that his his main characteristic vis-a-vis management was I hire good people, I trust them, I don't want to know. He's you know when when he didn't like you, instead of you know fighting it headstrong, which you know that's where we you you've been teach you've been taught in any management school instead of evading the question. You know, deal with it. my father was evading the question. He want to. He was basically ignoring you. If he had a fight with you, basically you never heard from him anymore. He never summoned you to his office. And and most people who got the point left. But it was not a direct approach. I, being more of an Israeli, more of a, you know as we're calling it, Israeli is a, described as a cactus, as a prickly pear. You know, it, it, it's, there's no time for this. You know, if you don't do your job, you expect it to do. I'll be on your shoulder. And without any mercy and so on and so forth. Again, in the law and the post-limitation of the law and regulation. So that's mainly what I brought in. I accomplished in that short period of time, between 2005 and 2015, um, I managed to to produce, to make sure everybody's involved, produce the, finishing the Hebrew production of the Hebrew Talmud, taking over the English production of the English Talmud, doing the English Bible and publishing uh numerous amount of books is because again I had hey I had his hundred percent my father's support. I I did not have any um any strings, nothing was stopping me from moving forward, from you know achieving the next goal, next goal. And the ability I think in that time my father had amazing ability to talk to people and draw support, which in like any other book publishing, I mean people associate book publishing usually with with J.K. Rowling, you know, with Harry Potter. Everybody thinks that every author in the world sells millions of copies. Uh, no, most authors do not sell this kind of numbers. And um, sadly enough, a lot of printing houses basically print novelet- what are called nobility print, right? You print 300 copies and the, and, the, and the author has to pay for that. But then he gets stuck with 300 copies on his house, which has nothing to do with it because nobody wants to do it. And eventually they end up in recycling, right? That is the that is if you talk about ninety nine point nine of all authors, that's where it works. By the way, the same thing applies for apps and and, and startups. You know, ninety nine percent of them are going down drain. So you know the the the, the 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 idea with the right support, you can produce amazing material. And the biggest challenge was and will be mine and others will be just to push it forward and make it accessible and available for people. Uh, in the best form possible. So that's basically what I do. So we are discussing your father's book, Talks on the Padishah. As the title suggests, this is a collection of Rabbi Adinev and Israel's oral discourses on the weekly Padishot. Would you explain for our listeners the whole concept of the Padishot cycle and how that tradition began? Okay. So long time ago, when the world was young, there was a, pro- a prophet or I'm not sure what, yeah, I think a prophet, uh, Ezra. Ezra realized that people are much more dispressed as relatively to the time before, before the destruction of the first temple, and he realized that people only gather into the main communities only in market days. The communities are very, very wide and spread. Also, they were a very small community then, in Israel, I mean, in the, in the land of Israel, was very, the amount of people who actually returned back from Babylon in the first return was a very small amount. 
And they were, but they, you know, everybody wanted their own property, right? You already moved to a land. You might as well conquer your own, you know, become the lord of your own domain. You know, you don't need to have, you know, why not together? So the only time they got together really was Monday and Thursday, which was market day. So he decided that he will, he will create something that in every week they'll learn a small, they will read together in the, in the assembly a small part of the Torah, a Torah portion. And throughout history, there were a variety of ways of the way of doing it. Obviously, you, you had to read something like 10 verses. There were three members of the community who received the, the calling to the Torah, calling to the, to the scroll, usually from the three major groups of, of the tribe, which was the Kohanim, which are the priests, and the Levites, which are the Levites who were basically in charge of the music and guarding of the temple. And the regular Israelites, the rest of the community, and all three of them used to get called to the Torah scroll, bless it, of course, and, and read it aloud. Now, the problem is that what they're trying to do, so that was the first thing. So he basically assumed, basically, basically every three days, somebody see the Torah. Right? So you have Monday, Thursday, and of course, Saturday. This is the time before prayer was established as, as a mean of communication with God. This is still a time when the, the temple, the holy temple in Jerusalem, is the source of worship, and the main source of worship is, is animal sacrifices. But that was something that every community did, and he established it uh, quite well. Now, what he's trying to do, what he's saying, okay, so now after we know what we do, now the question is what quantity? So they decided to they divide the Torah for to a cycle of three years originally. Basically, every year you read a third, and when you get to um, the, end of the, the end of the holiday of the tabernacle, then you complete the cycle. So that was the common cycle. And then as the year went by, they realized that, I mean, I don't know why they didn't think about it in the first place, saying, wow, the, the, the year has 52, 54 weeks, right? And the Torah, the Torah has 52 portions. So it's might as well, let's play with it. So uh, that's what he did, and they basically adopted a cycle that starts from basically the last day of the celebration of, of Sukkot, the tabernacle, and, and moving on throughout the year for a year cycle. Now, of course, we have to adjust for, to augmentate it to, uh, to times of, you know, when you have a leap year, when you have a holiday and Sabbath, and so on and so on. But the idea is that you do it once a week, you read one Torah portion. That is the common, common read worldwide. There are some communities today that still do a three-year cycle, but they, they are more, more privileged in the conservative movement and reform movement than the orthodox movement. But um, the idea is simple. You read, first of all, you read every week something new, but as a whole, you have a continuity. As a whole, this is going on throughout the year. Traditionally, a kid who become uh, a member of the tribe, 13 for, man, 13 for a boy, read, will lane or read one of the Torah portions in the synagogue before, after, or during his his thirteenth uh, birthday, but that's the idea of it. That's where it's come from, and I think it's a it's a good. It, it's also brought a unity to the Jewish world in the sense of whenever you go in the world, right? It doesn't matter if I go to Australia or I go to Brazil, or go to Antarctica, or I go to 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 Russia. When I go to the synagogue on Sabbath, on Shabbat, on the Sabbath. I will get the same thing. I'll get the same experience. I, I, you know, I can keep a track with my mem members of the tribe. You know, I, I, whatever I go, I have something that my 
people who would continue. That is, that is the biggest benefit of this kind of uh, cycle and sharing the cycle together. The reading cycle underscores the Torah as the foundation for the rest of the Tanakh. Would you elaborate on that relationship within the canon? You know, as we only have um, 40 minutes, <laughs> so the Isa, the, the, there's a very clear, um, very clear distinction between the Torah, the five books of Moses, and the rest of the Bible. First of all, the, the clear, clear assumption is that the dictation of the Torah was given to Moses. It, it was given to Moses and written by Moses, and, and the language is uh, Moses' language. Even though by any academic uh, level, and not even academic, you obviously you see the difference when Moses described, Moses or God described the, the tales of the forefathers, it's one language, when he described the Exodus and the Leviticus and Numbers, it's another language, when he talks on the book of Numbers, is is much more personal. You know, they, 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 you can definitely see, but definitely the divinity of the first five books of Moses are in a high level, a higher holiness than the rest. And again, it's also because of the, the nature of this thing. First of all, describe the creation of the nation. He create, creating the, he is, is putting the, a place for, you know, the creation, from the creation of the world, the creation of the first uh you know, first believer, so to speak, first public believer, because there were other, but first public believer, Abraham, and then the story of the family, and then the revelation of Mount Sinai, and then the commandments, which is the biggest tool, are really, 99.9 of them are in the, in, the, in the five books of Moses. There are explanation and description of them in the other, the other um, 19 books. Of the Bible, but in general, the first five are the most essential ones. And it, it, even in, again, there is a variety of ways that they were called, but most people, most common readers of the traditional text will tell you that the five books of Moses were written by Moses, that's using the name, the five books of Moses, or divinely, I'm not even saying that, I think it was divinely inscribed by God. Did God write the Torah? No. God gave Moses to write the Torah, and therefore the Torah is written in a human language, and the, and the term that they're using is a humane language. Therefore, for example, we're talking about the, 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 the anger of God, the fear of God, the hands of God, all those things, a metaphor. Obviously, God has no shape and no image, and he cannot get upset because his upsetness has to do with human, human relationship. But Moses is trying to explain like the other prophets after him, but he had much more of a direct contact to God. He, Moses tried to explain all those people what God is, what God feels, what God behaves. I mean, obviously, it's not what it's not what you see. It's the way it's described. It, it, traditionally, one of the most famous um, famous line is, is the you know the line about an eye for an eye. Right? As far as we know, again, and we believe in that. At least, again, I don't have any other proof for it, but at least as far as we believe. We never actually practiced this. We never actually took somebody, oh, you go to somebody's eyes and we'll take him with a, you know, with a nail and put his eye. No, we never did that. Or if somebody stole, we never took his hand. I mean, it never happened. But the way Moses described it is what the way that people understood. And the same thing is when you read the Maimonides commentary or description of the sacrifice, he said, look, there's nothing more physical than sacrificing animals. And clearly, God doesn't eat. And clearly, God doesn't need this. But the idea is that, but that was the term that people understood in those days. 
Therefore, the language is meant for people, for human language. So the, the Torah, as much as it's divine, is also very, very, very humane. And, and it's what, what I think one of the things that is very unique about Judaism as a religion, the six unfairing commandments really cover all your day. You know, you wake up in the morning, you have a commandment to go to sleep. You have, you're having intimate fellowship, you have a commandment. It's everything has to do with the godly worship. It's only working in the process of being part of what we are. And that is something that is, uh, I think, very unique. And that was made the Torah very, very, very uh, important and holy. Also, the Torah is the importance of the historical, the, the fact it's not as accurate, as accurate or not accurate, is of the historical fact is obviously for a believer it's extremely important but it's not about it it's much more about the stories about the tales about what what are we hearing you know what we know about the forefather is very limited we we have a very small exposure on the life of abraham abraham was we coming to our life when he's 75 right what did the guy do for 75 years not a word right that is a jump basically till he's 90 and then from 90 to 100 is also a jump Right? And then from 100 to 137, when his, when his wife passed away, there's only two occasions that there's some, some word is mentioning. So, the, the, so we don't look at this as a chronological order of what happened as much as chronological historical order of spiritual nature. But somebody looking and said, you know, this is why this thing emanates. The story comes to teach us something that is tremendously, tremendously unique. For example, we know that, according to our tradition, the last book of the Torah, the last book of Moses, the Deuteronomy, was written in one month. When Moshe was already 120, according to something, it was one day, but it seemed like more one month. The other, the other two, the other three books of the, you know, of the Exodus, from Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, took 40 years. You know, comparing the size of both of them, you get to a situation which they are makes no sense. We don't know again, even in the 40 years the Jews spent in the desert. Our information, in a lot of ways, is minimal. We we get what we got. We, we have historical the historical information is limited to what we need to know, and that was important. Everything else did not make not, not make the cut. There were other books, in my view, they were you know as a as a supportive material so on and so forth. That is the first. That's the importance of the five books of Moses. Is in short, it was. Dictated by God or divinely given to Moses, and Moses wrote of them, <laughs> and the purpose of them was to guide the people. That's the reason they make them much more important than the rest of the books. It's true that for the cultural understanding of what Jewish people went through, the story of the kings and what they do and if they were good and more bad, it's important. And this is seemed to be much more of a historically accurate document or accurate that they describe and depict historical events. But it's different because the message there is different. But that's the book of Kings. If you go on on to the, the other books, the books of the prophets, obviously, again, a guy a guy like uh, Jeremiah who prophesies, I think, for 20 years, or, or a guy like uh, Ishayahu, Isaiah, who prophesies for even longer time till he'd been killed. Um, you know, the, the guy, that's what he did for a living. I mean, you not have another job. It's not like you are your scholar, you know, you can do... You know, teach in the morning, do business in the afternoon, and have play with your grandkids all day long. No, this is a guy. Well, that was the main facilitation that he did. He was a prophet, and even though that the book of Isaiah, sixty-three chapters, right, 63, 63, 66, it doesn't matter. It's still he had a whole life to write, 
And what we have is only the prophesies, only the prophecies that have value for the future. The future of the Jewish people can be past now, but it's definitely for the future of Jewish people. That was the main purpose why we kept those things. We know that there were there was a time there were thousands of prophets. There actually were schools of prophecy. The way uh, Elijah described the sons of the prophets, and the, of course the word sons here, not referring to physical children, talking about the young prophet in the making, there were thousands of them, literally thousands of them, and they, so, and whatever we have in the Bible, whatever we have the rest of the Bible, the, the readings and, and the, the prophecies, I think that we are important. Now, the last part, of course, the readings are much more later in time, seems like they're later in time, and there were a lot of them were compilation of things that they were important to bring it up, but they were not prophecy level. Like one of the most favorite books of mine, and what most people like it, um, like by most religious organizations, is, is uh, religious orders, is the Book of Psalms. King David Psalms. But, yeah, can you read the prophecy in them? Absolutely. But the, that, the value, the value of it is, is really poems, and, and Lears and, and, and even and you know some of the Masagas that King David, who was a prophet by his by his abilities, wrote maybe with the, again with divine presence around him, and we believe that the divine presence did not leave him, but he wrote it from his heart, and it's not it's not divinely um, written, so to speak. In, in, if I may, I know it's very semantic, and so you know it's very semantic between divinely inspired and divinely written, divinely. Um, uh, written. But that's the difference. You have to find the right definition of what is each one of those texts, but still the five books of Moses are the most important ones. In the Padishah book's preface, your father begins by saying, quote, the Torah contains within it many worlds. What did he mean by that? I, I think, again, he, what he meant is that, he, again, in my view, right. he, he ne- we never talked about it directly as far as I know, the, the, when you read a story, I mean, the, the, when you read any story in the Bible, generally any story, but in general, definitely in the Bible, it really depends to what world you belong. In the, to what world you belong, not just where the text belongs, but where you belong. For example, if you are if you're a lawyer, this Torah portion of the story that we're now reading the story about Balak and Bilam, the king and the prophet, you know, there's a lot of negotiation going on there. So if you're a lawyer, you can say, no, this is really talking to me. This is my world. And if you are a guy who who into the the you know the Renaissance and the metaphors and the <clears throat> rules of kings, you know it's exactly that. You have the kings of his dignity calling upon the the, the prophet to come. You know, there's there's a different different expression the way I read it. It's my world, your world. Two, again, for example, this Torah portion is very unique because at least half of the Torah portion is not written from our perspective. It's written from the Moabite perspective. They're telling the story. Moses probably sat down with some of the Muslim people and asked for the information. God, I presume, helped him to, the, you know, the missing gaps. But, you know, in the general, it was a different, so it's, it's a different world. I think that's one thing. The other thing is that sometimes the, sometimes the Torah speaks in a very basic realm. In the sense of, here's the rules, do not steal, do not kill, respect your parents. That's one realm. And then Torah speaking about realms will make absolutely no sense, like keeping kosher. You know, throughout ages, people say, people keep kosher are healthier. No, it's nonsense. They don't have the as healthy as everybody else. You do exercise to be, you know, that's where it's work. You have to do, the, the intake and outtake of, of kosher food, non-kosher food, is absolutely no difference. Whatever you overeat, 
might cause you problems. It's not me doing anything. But it's not making any sense. Why should, why, you know, especially when you look at animals who you have kosher and non-kosher breeds look exactly, almost exactly the same. What's the difference between a pig and a cow? Nothing. You know, in the sense of it, what's the difference? They're both animals, they both walk, they walk, eat. The difference is that that one has become kosher by definition, one is not kosher by definition. Oh, you have the, you know, the red heifer. Really? I mean, finding a red heifer. I mean, all these things are not your realm. And then you have the third realm is when God interfered. The five books of Moses, more than anything else, have God interference on a regular, regular basis. It's unbelievable. And it's always his hand, like, it seems like, in, in a way, Moses, in, in the five books of Moses, Moses is the conduit between the two worlds. You know, he, in one hand, he's grabbing God and saying, ah, you walk with us, I'm not letting you go. And the other side is dealing with the people all day long who are, in, in any way, shape, or form, annoying brats. You know, and he has, um, he has, uh, you know, he has this contradiction constantly. So, so that is something that, you know, we, we, we have to look at and appreciate it. And that's reason I think that's what he meant by the world. There were different, there were different aspects for it. And you can see, for example, when you take a child, you take a teenager, you take an adult, and you read the same story to them, you will see that the message they get is completely different and the, and the way they interpret it is completely different. More so, it's also different interpretation throughout the years. So each one of those things, maybe even every day, it's a different world, it's a different aspect. And I think that's what he meant by that. We also want to highlight another book by Rabbi Evan Israel called Change and Renewal on the Essence of the Jewish Holidays. In it, your father wrote, quote, Our festivals and holidays are the landmarks, signposts, and lights along the way. While they are part of the annual cycle, these special days are also openings through which we may emerge from the stagnancy and rut of life's routine, end quote. Would you elaborate on that idea for us? Sure. I mean, the, fir the first step we have to take is that everybody that has holidays, even if it's a secular holiday, the, the, the idea of holidays is basically really a break of the routine. And, you know, even the old good old days of the United States, when you walk on Sunday in New York, even in New York, everything was closed, or most things were closed. I mean, obviously, the closer you get to the Midwest was, you know, lock and barrel and whatever. The more you went in, you know, to, again, close to the Bible Belt, but even other places, that, that's the first notion of a holiday. Holiday is really a break of our regular life. That's the reason we take vacation. We take vacation because we don't take vacation with the same people we are all year long with. Like we go to vacation with our wives, vacation with our kids. I mean, they're there, they're at home. It's my, you know, we can, most of the activities I, we can do with them at home. But the idea is that you take a break. You, you take what you do and you move it to the, you make a, a gap in time and you change it to your setting. Now, holiday, which comes from the, I think the original word is holy day, obviously from holiness, is that I'm not just, I'm not just saying I'm taking a day, uh, a break from my regular day and just taking a vacation, you know, now because it's a holiday, I can go to better places. No, it's more than that. It says that these this days are unique. These days have a, a gift in them, a gift about them that one has to appreciate. They're not your uh, round-the-mill vacation days. This is a serious day that you have to also sometimes reflect and sometimes bring the family together. Some of the days in Jewish tradition have more responsibility than others. 
But in general, there's really a break in your life. They, they really say, you know what, stop today and now you're gone. Now, obviously, if you are, if a person is observant Jew, obviously we have it every Saturday that you have this kind of, uh, you know, stop and go. But again, Saturday happens every week. And when you have those holidays, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, Tabernacle of Hanukkah, it all them a much more bigger breaks, more meaningful breaks. And, and I think that's also another, another, back to the same concept of world, you know, it's one thing to plan a one day of atonement. Another thing is to plan a week of, a, a week of Sukkot, being outside, or allegedly being outside, or mostly being outside, to a week of eating only matzah, even though this is really not only matzah in any shape or form. But it's really, each one of those aspects is, is a whole world. I wish we had time to talk about each of the holidays, but maybe you can elaborate on one, the meaning of blowing the ram's horn on Rosh Hashanah. Your father writes that the blowing of the shofar is an unpleasant sound, an alarm. Quote, sometimes it is a blast of broken sobbing over what has happened, over what has been lost, while other times it is a blast of warning against further pitfalls and sources of decline. And sometimes it is the sound of victory, of assurance that in the midst of the cycle of seasons, there is a door of hope that this year will truly be a new year. Do you unpack that thought for us? So even when you take what he said about the shofar, it's really the way it is, right? The beginning, when beginning of the prayer, the, the shofar is a terrible voice, but really, it's really not an amazing instrument, so to speak. You know, it's very whiny. You know, you get this whining with your own whining. You whine for the sake of God. You know, we ask him for God for forgiveness. That's the day of, of, of Rosh Hashanah. It's really, we ask him for forgiveness and so on and so forth. So God, you know, so we're together with the shofar. And as the day goes by, the day, you know, the shofar come and tell you, look, look for the future. Do not transgress again. You know, it's a warning sign. It's much more of a, you know, a siren for, like, for war. I know we have it here from time to time. You know, it's much more of a, you know, warning, the attention. And then you have in the end of Yom Kippur, the end of the Day of Atonement, then you have this concept of redemption. This is a liberation bell. In a sense, you can make this allegory on kids on schools, you know, when a kid comes to school the first time, the first the morning, the first alarm in the morning is basically a call of pain. Come, kids, come together, right? Then you have lunch, which is like, you know, you have another four hours to go, right? You did some, it's good, but you have four more hours to go. Be ready. And then you have the final bell where everybody's running and happy and beginning. And then, like, this is like the calling bell. It's like the happiness. Oh, I, I got free. So again, it, it's it's a concept of different worlds, a concept of different meaning to the same thing. And by the way, I, I know both from personal experience and from other experiences that people have have a different way to deal with the holidays. It depends on where they're from, depends what their education, for what they're brought up, for how the way they look at it. Example, I personally don't like the, the holiday of Tabernacle. I mean, of course, it's celebrated, I'm enjoying it, but the fact that I... I have to eat everything in the sukkah is driving me absolutely, utterly mad. Now, it, true, my sukkah is outside, it's really outside my door, but it's really annoying because our custom dictates that we even drink water in the sukkah. So you can't go to trips because there's no sukkah on the street. You can't, you know, so and so on. 
You know, it's like, I love Passover. You know, you eat, you enjoy, then you just, you know, you eat this terrible bread, but nobody, nobody, right, no, no, uh, no dietitian will tell you today that any bread is good. So the differences are very small. So again, it really depends on how you live. And again, you see it also from the children and the youth and the, and women and, and wives and, and, and depends who's cooking, depends how much you're cooking. You know, you, you know, for example, we're talking about Passover. I hope one day we will have this show about this, the holiday. But, you know, Passover, in my mother's house, like way before Passover, it was like you're going into the Fort Knox. I mean, you couldn't go in. This is it. This is where the door locked. You're not moving in. I'm going to cook. And it was very, very clear. This has now become the sanctum of society. It was the whole week of cooking, which, I, you know, as you're adult, you discover that the Passover Seder is one meal. It's just one meal, okay? It's one meal. And we're preparing for this for three weeks. And, you know, people work and they clean it. Oh, yeah. But, again, it's part of the celebration. So when you talk about the Parsha, when you talk about the Jewish holiday, my father's main thing, again, and that's different between this and his commentary in general, is here he brings ideas. He brings concepts that he, throughout his life, he struggled with. He, he it's not struggled in the sense of that it was a hindrance to him, but something that he played with and he, and he wanted to bring it for example, he wrote something, you know, about again, about this Torah portion. That in the beginning of the Torah portion of this week, we referring to Bilam as the prophet, and a prophet in that sense means a holy man. Even though his attributes maybe were not our, what we consider the best of them all, but he, he was a prophet. He had, a, he was touched by the divine, and he, and he was probably elaborate enough to reach the divine. But then in the end of the Torah portion, referred to him as a soothsayer, which is more of a mockery. I mean, one is, one is very intellectual, very spiritual, but I think that one is like, hey, this guy's a, a corner street, you know, psychic, even though he was very good in what he did, even as a psychic. I mean, mind you, the, the men, men advice were tremendously beneficial to, in the short run, of course, for the people of Midian, people of Noah, it didn't last in the long run, but in, in that moment, they succeeded. So, you know, you look at it and you said, I told, my father, I told people that I never realized this. I never realized there's a difference between a prophet and, 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 and a soothsayer. Because on the base level, the same thing. There's some idea of somebody to tell the future. But now there's a completely different thing. The prophet is somebody that is the divine, our, our divine. Not, not that some, you know, mystical creature. Our divine, our God, is touched. Is, is, is bringing him to, to spirituality. And here you have a guy who's immediately after that, he is Susan. You know, it's like, you know, when you walk in the street and you see on one side, you see a house of worship, and side you see a psyche. Duh. I mean, what's the question? Of course you can go to the house of worship. You know, but here, you know, that's what the change is, even in Bilam. You know, and, and when you read it, so I think that's what my father really meant. Again, both books have this. Is the small little glimpses of, of light, of, of ideas that are very, um, how to explain it, they're very, um, very humane, usually trying to find some, his articles here, this is not the, not a favorite book of everybody, The Third Pale Rose, it's not a book about mysticism, this is a book about the pragmatism of how to read the text. And the biggest, biggest lesson of all of this is, and it's the thing, the, the thing, the first thing my father wanted is, is that is always need to be new. I read them anew every day. I can read a text today, and after talking to you, or talking to you, you know, and teaching and, and speaking with your listeners, so to speak, 
I, I can come with a different interpretation. And as long as this is not a direct contradiction to our faith and not to our tradition, it's legitimate. You know, I think Moses went through so much psychoanalysis in the last, you know, 100 years since psychoanalysis was invented. You know, <laughs> the poor man is now being, you know, you know whatever is the mother's issues, his father's issues, his, his, uh, his render issues, his humility, you know. But that's part of the modern, modern understanding. We implement psychology, for example, on this thing. And I'm sure when a lawyer reads, a lawyer and a banker or, or, a, or a social worker, everybody has a different interpretation based to what they are connected with. The Padisha Torah reading cycle often aligns with the cycle of holidays, bringing out further significance. Well, that's, that, that's not our right. That's the way it was dictated. But, um, you know, but yeah, but that it was said, the biggest need to, again, I told people, we need to remember that Judaism is a long, all life process. There's no downtime. You are worshiping God 24-7. There's no downtime. So, you know, when I have Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, but then I have to pray three times a day. And then I have to do my, my religious readings, which I, I, I'm not sure it's obligation, but it's definitely a requirement. Okay? You know, and then you have Sabbath, which you celebrate both in prayer and food and, and, and family. And, and again, and then you have holidays. Or this week, for example, we're starting the, the Sunday, we will start the three weeks of mourning, you know, for the destruction of the temple, which happened 2,000 years ago. And most people, the famous story about Napoleon, is that you know, an opponent comes to the city of Akko, which is not really clear that the story ever happened, but the, the legend is, comes to the Akko, or he comes to, in France, you see that the Jews are, on the 9th of Av, the Jews are sitting on the floor in mourning, and they ask him, what are you doing? He said, we are mourning for destruction of the temple. He said, was it destroyed last week? He said, no, destroyed last year. He said, no, destroyed five years ago. He said, no, went on and on. He said, no, it was destroyed 1,800 years ago. He said, why? He said, he said because by us, it's still vibrant and still alive, the memory, the family, the, the, the year. And I think part of it is what you say is because these two our holidays and our, our holidays and the text are, are, are combined, are, are something we live by. And again, I recommend everybody, you know, we, if I could, I mean, I, I, it's very hard for me to imagine because I don't live in that world, but I imagine if you are a regular person and you, you have stories of your family, you just have to collect them. You have to find them and say, okay, this is our family holiday. So we're going to celebrate it from now on. This is the, you know, the birthday of the, the mother of all the kids. This is the mother of the matriarch of the family. That's her birthday. It, you know, it doesn't have to be a royal house, uh, you know, of rules and regulation. It can be something that we all come up with and say, look, this is a story bringing together. And that is the combination of the Torah, the books of about Parsha, books about the, the, the Jewish holidays. Rabbi Many, can you give us a word on the Steinsaltz app? I was excited to see that new video and audio lectures were recently uploaded. Thank you. I mean, the app is available. I mean, it's still a beta, but it's like active beta, both in the Apple Store and the Google Store. It, it's basically going to be our library, and eventually we hope, you know, negotiation with some uh, supporters to create it also as a web platform. But it is that basically we'll, we'll bring all my father knowledge to one location and people can learn and, and participate in it. And the biggest benefit is because of modern technology, we are able, we hope to be able to, to add not just my father books, which is nice, but also all the audio and the video that we have, which is, again, tremendous amount. I mean, we, we keep finding stuff that, you know, that family said, look, he was by us. We have a recording. You know, we're talking about 
Right now we estimated we have 5,000 hours of video and about 10 to 15,000 hours of audio. Again, most of them in Hebrew, but in the general idea that we have them and the fact that they're available, it'd be unbelievable. So the app, again, for us, the app, the biggest purpose of the app is, again, accessibility and availability of people have the the Jewish canon, so to speak, Jewish book available in your palm of your hands. Not a new invention, but a very good invention. It's a really good upgrade compared to what I think is in the market. And, uh, you know, it's very accessible. Our dream, of course, is to be able to, uh, in the future, again, I'm not sure it will be before the launching of the app, to have it as a white label. So we can provide for organization, for institution, for individuals, the way they want. So if they don't want the entire Steinsatz library, but they want the small thing or the one with the Bible, to be able to work with them to create a platform they will enjoy thoroughly. As always, thank you, Rabbi Many, for being generous with your time. It was good catching up. My pleasure. My pleasure. Anytime. Anytime. Friends, you've been listening to New Books in Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.